You know, we're a couple days removed from Veterans Day, and we did as best we could to put the Sunday closest to Veterans Day. I know we're two days past, but we're celebrating Veterans Day today, if that's okay with everybody. But when I think of Veterans Day, really I think of it in two parts. The first part, I think of the veteran and those, the men and women who have served our country so bravely and so proudly. But I also think of the part of just the ordinary citizen, the people in this room that have not served our country, that are not veterans. And for the veteran, we think of the sacrifice. We think of the service, and not just a sacrifice or service, but really a sacrifice that was necessary. We, it, it provokes gratitude in our hearts when we think of the veterans who have gone all of the long days and the long nights and the time away from home and the missed bedtime with kids and the conversations and the soccer games and so, so much time and energy and effort, not just spent, but spent sacrificially for our country. And we think of that sacrifice, but the truth of it is that sacrifice is necessary. And in a way, I wish it wasn't necessary. I wish that we didn't need soldiers. I wish that we didn't need protection, but we live in a world where we do. We need an army. We need soldiers to have a sense of security, to be able to defend our freedoms, to be able to fight for us. And it's a sacrifice. It's not just a sacrifice, but it's a necessary one. It's a required one. But for those of us in the room who did not serve in the military, and I would be in that camp. I'm not a veteran. I'm just a citizen. It, it requires something of us. There's an action that it should produce in our, not just our hearts and not just even in our words, but an action, something that we do. It should produce something inside of us that we want to take the freedom, we want to take the sacrifice, and we want to do our best to uphold that and to honor that and to treat it with the utmost respect. And we should have gratitude towards our men and women who served, and we should give honor to whom honor is due. But as I studied over the past couple weeks, and I did my best to research a little bit, what does a veteran want? When it comes to Veterans Day, what do they expect? And you know what I found? And I was surprised as I read some forums, and I read some interviews, and I tried to do my best to research, that best I could tell, there were no two answers that were exactly the same from a veteran. But veterans want more than just words. And they want more than just a thank you and more than just gratitude. And although they appreciate that, best I could tell, veterans want people to do something with the freedom they have. They want people to be involved, to vote, to get involved in a veterans group somewhere in your local community. They want people to, to act, to do something with the freedom that they have fought so long and hard to protect and they've sacrificed so much. And that's what today is about for Harvest Baptist Church. We are, we are doing our best not just to say thank you and not just to give honor, but to, to commit acts of gratitude to you, to give you a gift bag with a handwritten note from one of our uh, high school or junior high or elementary students, to give you a little gift inside of that bag, to be able to sing, to be able to honor. That's, that's what we're trying to do today. In, in some small way, and it does feel small compared to the sacrifice that our veterans make, we're trying to have an act where we express our gratitude to the men and women who have made a necessary sacrifice. But today for a church, and if you're visiting with us, today for a church, this goes much deeper for us than just expressing gratitude to veterans. We believe as a church, and I believe personally, that the greatest gift that anyone could ever be given, whether that's a veteran or a citizen or even someone that's outside of the United States, the greatest gift that has ever been given and that we could ever give is Jesus Christ. 
That's what we believe as a church, that the best thing that we could do for anyone in the planet is to offer them Jesus Christ and help them see the sacrifice that Jesus made and to see how he really does connect in a deep level with the sacrifice that our veterans have made. And for the next 15 to 20 minutes, I want to do my best to bring you on a journey to consider Jesus and to think about how he too made a necessary sacrifice for us and how that sacrifice should produce action in us. That sacrifice should, it should cause us to want to do something, to want to say something when we see what he did. If you brought your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians 5, whether that's in a Bible, whether that's electronically on your phone or iPad. If you did not bring your Bible, we're going to put it on the screen and we're going to make it really easy for you. It's two verses this morning and we're going to leave those verses up there the entire service as we reference back to them. So if you didn't bring a Bible, don't worry about it. We have them here on the screen. Before I read these couple verses in 2 Corinthians 5, I want you to understand a little bit about the man who wrote these verses. <clears throat> these verses are written by a man named Paul. Paul was a guy in the first century who hated Christians and hated Jesus. He was a guy who spent his time and spent his life and, and committed himself to persecuting the church. He committed himself to trying to oppress the church and to put them in prison and to persecute them and even to murder some of them. Paul was not a very nice man and he did not like Jesus at all. And this man who spent his life and his time and his effort and his energy persecuting the church one day on the road to a city called Damascus had an experience, I guess you could call it. And Paul had this experience where he did a 180 in his life. He went from a man who hated Christians and hated Jesus to a man who loved Jesus and wanted to serve the church and not persecute the church and not hurt the church, but rather he wanted to help them and he wanted to see it flourish. Now, naturally, the church was a little standoffish to Paul at first. They knew of this man who was persecuting them, who was martyring them. They knew of this man who was murdering many of them. And naturally, they thought this could be a ploy. This could be something nefarious. Paul could be trying to get one over on us. And they were a bit standoffish. But as time went on and a man named Barnabas took Paul under his wing, Paul was proven that this was real that he had become a Christian, that he now loved Christ, and that he was sincere in his attitude and in his heart and in his motives. And Paul went to a place called Corinth, a town, and he led many of the people there to Jesus and told them about what he had experienced, the greatest gift of Jesus. And then years later, he writes these words back to these people that he is introduced to Jesus. And this is what Paul says inside of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. He says, for the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Paul starts off and he says, look, there's a love, it's the love of Christ, and this love constrains us. Literally, this love binds us, this love arrests us, this love captivates us. This love, it compels us. I don't know if you've ever been constrained. I grew up with four brothers. I have two older, young, two older brothers and two younger brothers. And my two older brothers had different modes of operation when it came to beating up on me. And beating up on me, they did, often. My oldest brother is a bit of, 
he flies off the handle, he has a bit of a temper, and his mode of beating me up was just to throw me down and to kick me or hit me. The next brother, he was a constrainer. He was the brother, and I'm the runt of the family, by the way. All my brothers are bigger than I am. My, my next brother, Brian, he was the one who would put you in a chokehold, or he would put you in a submission move, or he would lock your legs, or if you've ever been in a full Nelson or a half Nelson or something like that, that was Brian. That was what he did. That's how he would beat up on me. He would constrain me and constrict me to a degree. Paul says there's something in my life, and there's something in the life of these Christians that constrains us, and it's love. Now, that's, that's unique that love would constrain somebody, but really, that's real life. When we think about love, the deeper you go into relationship and the deeper you go into love, the more you are constrained. If you have a friend who's the opposite sex and you, you kind of like each other, then you have a lot of freedom. You're still, even with your friend, even though you may like them, you can date other people, you can do as you please, you can go where you want, you're not accountable to them to any degree. But then comes that time where you begin to date that guy or that girl and what happens when you start dating them? You immediately have some constraints. Now you can't just go date other people. At least you're not supposed to, and they would be displeased with that. <laughs> now you have a little bit of accountability to them. And then one day, eventually you get married, and you go deeper into love. And what does your spouse tell you? I want you to wear this ring on your finger. I, everywhere you go, I want you to have this ring on. I want you to have a testimony that you belong to me and I belong to you. Now when you're married, they have some control where were you at? I never had an answer to anybody where I was at before, and I have to tell you where I was at. How much money did you spend on shoes? Those sorts of questions start to come up. Why? Because we're deeper in a relationship, and naturally with that love and with that relationship, it comes some constraints. And, and that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing at all. That's a good thing. That's the way it should be. And Paul says the love of Christ and my relationship with him, it constrains me. There are many in this room, I'm sure, who you volunteered for service and you volunteered for your country. Why? Because love of country. The love that you had for the Constitution, the love that you had for our freedom, the love that you had for your country constrained you and compelled you to do something with that. Constrained you to sign up and to sacrifice and to put your life on the line. That's a deep love and we're appreciative of that love. And Paul says, here's this love of Christ and it constrains me. And then he's going to elaborate a little bit on what is this love that constrains him. And here is what Paul says. He says, because we thus judge, or this just makes sense to us, that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. This is where the story of Jesus connects so deeply to our veterans in that Jesus Christ made a sacrifice, and not just a sacrifice, but he made a sacrifice that was necessary. He made a sacrifice that was the ultimate sacrifice, that he died for us. The Bible says in John that greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Paul writes elsewhere in Romans that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Peter said, for Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. This is why the cross is so much more than a memorial for us. It's so much more than a symbol for us. It's, it's a symbol that Christ died, yes, but, and don't miss this, it's a symbol that Christ died for us. 
It wasn't just a sacrifice. It wasn't just a death. It wasn't just something that was on his to-do list or a waste of his time. It was something that was done as a representative for you and for me. And the implications of this, that Christ would die for us, are enormous. The first implication that comes from this is that we needed someone to die for us. Now, we bristle at that. We don't particularly like that. We, we're okay if someone wants to do something for us out of the kindness of their heart. Yeah, great, thank you. But if someone has to do something for us, they have to bail us out, they have to pay the bill or it's not going to get paid, we don't like that. We want to be independent. We don't want to feel helpless. We don't want to feel as though I don't have a horse in the race and I have no control over this and I can't do it in my own power. As Americans and just as human beings, we naturally, we want to be in control. We want to feel like we have some power. We want to feel like we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and we can do this, right? But Paul says that Christ died for us and the implication of this is that we cannot die for ourselves and get ourselves separated from our sin, that we cannot gain entrance into heaven, that we need Jesus Christ to die for us. When it comes to our sin, we cannot be self-sufficient. We pride ourselves on being self-sufficient as Americans, but when it comes to sin and getting into heaven one day, it is impossible to be self-sufficient. Now, some people really step back and they don't like that truth. And I admit, it's a hard truth. I admit that it is. But think about it logically for a moment, if I could illustrate it this way. Let's suppose, let's suppose that I, not a sin, but a crime, according to our laws, according to our Constitution. Let's suppose that I do three crimes a day. Now that would be, that'd be a decent amount of crimes. Maybe I I don't wear my seatbelt, I break the speed limit, maybe there's something else. They all revolve around driving. We break the law every day. We probably do. But let's suppose it wasn't a crime. Let's suppose it was sins. Let's suppose that I did three sins a day. That actually would be a pretty small amount. If I could do three a day, I'd be pretty pleased with myself. I just had one bad thought. I just got angry when I shouldn't have gotten angry one time. I was prideful one time. Just three a day. Three a day would be roughly a thousand a year, a little more than a thousand a year. I'm almost 30. That would be 30,000 sins, 30,000 crimes in my lifetime. Now, if we stood before a mortal judge for some crime that we had committed, and that judge had a book of 30,000 crimes that I had committed in my lifetime, and he could read them off one by one by one by one, would I expect the judge to let me go free? Would I expect a lot of mercy? Would I expect that I would just be given a hall pass and and be escaped from jail because of that? No, we would expect that judge to throw the book at me because of the crimes I had committed. But somehow, we oftentimes get this idea that when I get to heaven, yeah, I've done some wrong, I've done some sins, maybe even 30,000, maybe 40,000, maybe 50,000, who knows? But I've done some wrong, but when I get there, God will just kind of wink at it. God will just kind of ignore it. He won't throw the book at me. It'll be okay because sprinkled in there is some good that I've done as well. But the Bible is extremely clear that that's not the case. That's not how God operates. The Bible is very clear that Our sin had a penalty attached to it, and we could not pay for it ourselves. We could not do enough good to dig ourselves out of the hole, so to speak. So what did God do? Christ died for us, for our sins. And and some would say, that is depressing. 
If that's Christianity, that is, that's sad. That's gloomy. That's, I'm not good enough. I need somebody. That's, that is extremely depressing and pessimistic. But that is only half the story. The other half, it's not just that I was so bad that I needed someone to die for me. It's that I was so valuable and I am worth so much that Jesus Christ did die for me. Not just that I needed it, but that God took on flesh, came to earth, died on the cross, was buried and rose again for me. That, that, it's not just God sitting in heaven condemning me and looking down and saying, you've done these wrongs and you've done these sins. It's that he looked and said that and said, I want to help. I want to be involved. I want to take care of this. I want to demonstrate my love to you that I will come and I will pay the price for you. So when you, when you wrap it all together, you understand that Christianity is so much more than pessimism. It's so much more than just looking at the wrongs that we've done. It's that God loved you and God loved me. And I needed someone to die for me, but he did it. He was willing, and, and that adds so much value to us. We see how, how much worth we have when, when we consider that Jesus Christ died for our sins. One commentator of the Bible said it this way. He said, the essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God. Well, the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be, but God put himself where we deserve to be. His sacrifice was a necessary one. Why? Because we needed it. Because we could not help ourselves. We were helpless when it came to our sin. And Jesus did sacrifice. And it's our sin that separates us from God here on earth as well as in eternity. It's our sin that needs to be paid for. It's our sin that will prevent us entrance into heaven. But Christ died to pay the price for you and for me. And Paul says this love this is what constrains me. When I consider what Jesus did, when I consider the price that he paid, when I consider the, the depths of his love and how far he went to get me into heaven and to get me forgiveness of my sins, when I consider that, it's that love that constrains me. And he says, this produces an action inside of me. This, this produces something inside of me that I want to do and I want to be more for God. That's what he said in, in 2 Corinthians, which is on the screen. For the love of Christ constraineth us. Then he says that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. The Paul, the, Paul, the man who was so opposed to Jesus, the, the man who, who hated Jesus, who hated the church, who hated Christians, does a 180 and he believes in Jesus, but it does not stop there. Paul was a man who not just believed, but he acted out. He lived it. He spent his life now, the, the great reversal, spending his life telling others about Jesus Christ and this gift of redemption. This gift of Jesus and his sacrifice for our sins should produce a change in the way that we live, in the way that we think, in the way that we act, in the way that we treat other people. And if I was to tell you the truth, deciding to say yes to Jesus and deciding to believe in him and put your trust in his death for your sins is the greatest decision you will ever make. But that decision will change you. That decision will change you for the better, but it will change you. It will constrain you. It will, it will produce a difference in how you live and how you think and how you act on a day-to-day -day basis, and it should. If we're following someone, if we're following something, naturally we would be walking away from something else. 
And following Jesus does require us to do that. It requires us to say no to some things and to walk away from some things because we're following after him. And that is what Paul says. He says, this has produced a change in me. This changes how I live because now I live for him. I live for what he's done in my life. In essence, Paul was saying Christianity is not a title. Christianity is not a name badge that I wear. Christianity to Paul was his life. It was what he did. It's how he operated. It's it's what made him tick. And Paul says, for you as well, that if you believe in this, this love will constrain you and this love will produce a difference in how you live. It's an expected action. That we see the sacrifice that was so necessary but yet so great that he did this for us. And that should produce action. That should produce a change in our lives. If you're here in the room today, whether you are a member, whether you just normally attend, whether you're a visitor and you've never been here in your life, if you are here in the room and you have never said yes to Jesus and you have never put your faith and trust in him and what he did for you and dying for your sins today, I'm going to very simply invite you to do so. Today I'm going to ask you to put your trust in him and to ask him to save you. You say, well, how do I know? I mean, I've grown up in church. How do I know if I'm, if I'm saved or not? Maybe I am, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not. The easiest way I could put it and the simplest way I could put it is this. If you're saved, you'll know it. You will know something happened to you. You will know that a change took place. If you don't know it, then I would, I would put a big question mark around that and I would think that that may not be the case. And well, why do I need to be saved? Because of our sin. It is our sin that is, that is wrong and that separates us from God here on earth. It's what we struggle with so much in this life, but it's our sin that will eventually, if it's not taken care of and Jesus' death is not applied to our sin, it's our sin that will separate us from God in all of eternity in a place called hell. It's our sin that is the difference, and that's why we need a Savior. And can I tell you, He wants to save you. If you never have been, He wants to. He longs to. He desires to change you. He desires to help you with what you cannot help yourself with. He desires to come into your life and into your family and into your day-to-day living and make a difference and to change you from the inside out. And we spend so much time and energy and money trying to change ourselves from the outside in. But can I tell you, Christ can change you from the inside out. And his saving grace will do just that when you put your faith and your trust in him. In just a moment, we're going to have a word of prayer. While we have a word of prayer, I am going to invite you, if you've never said yes to Jesus, to do just that and to ask him today to save you from your sins and to take you to heaven. After we have a word of prayer, it's, it's our uh, norm here at, at Harvest Baptist Church to have what we call an invitation. Invitation is very simple. It's, it's basically an invite for anyone out here to take a few moments and to pray. The way that we do it is the pianist plays a little bit and church members, some will come forward and they'll pray down here at the front and just take a couple minutes, two, three minutes and talk to the Lord. Sometimes people come and they need, they need to talk to a pastor about something. They have a question about something. Today, if you make the decision to say yes to Jesus and to, to follow him, to be saved by him, I'm gonna invite you when we have the invitation to come. We'll have several pastors down here at the front, and we would love to meet you. We won't embarrass you. We won't put you on the platform. We won't make you say anything, but we'd love to meet you. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to have a little bit of information and maybe even touch base with you in a week or two and see how you're doing. We'd love to to do that. And today, if you are in the room and you have never 
been saved from your sin, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his death for you and his death for your sin, today I want to invite you to do that.